We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. And with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to the life in the world to come. Amen. This is the Nicene Creed, one of the historical creeds of the Christian church. This creed contains important statements about Yahweh and key doctrines that are binding on Christians in the universal or Catholic, with a small c, church. I love the ecumenical creeds. I've even joked with some using a, a parody of Top Gun. I feel the need, the need for creeds. <laughs> then I usually go in for the high five, you know, you have to complete the thing. Now, why would I, why would I say that? <clears throat> it's partly because I like a good pun. Uh, but more importantly, uh, because one of the ways that the creeds help us is by acting as guardrails against reading scripture in a way that would lead to false doctrines. Creeds like this one and, and other historical creeds of the church, ecumenical creeds, help us remember the Trinity, uh, the sufferings of Jesus, his death, resurrection, and ascension, uh, the fact that there is everlasting life in him, and the doctrine most related to our text today, Jesus being born of the Virgin Mary. We agree with the historical church that the virgin birth of Jesus is a fact. There are theological liberals who deny it, but they not only have the difficulty of getting the text to fit their ideas, but also the testimony of the historical church. Similarly, that also goes for those who tend to make more of Mary than the word does. So we will see this morning in our text uh, that it truly has very little to do with Mary at all. Um, in fact, this text that we're reading this morning is all about Yahweh. So we're now fast-forwarding through a, <clears throat> quite a bit of history since Ben's last sermon, uh, last Lord's Day. Um, and the long wait for the coming of the Messiah uh, has now come to uh, this moment. Mary's been through quite an ordeal. Uh, at the start of this text today. Um, at the start of Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel delivers a message to Mary as she was living in Nazareth and was betrothed to Joseph. Uh, that's found in Luke 1, verses 28 through 33, which says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. 
Mary, as any other normal person would, uh, asks Gabriel, well, how can this be? So Gabriel answers, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. That's an amazing statement. No one in the history of the world had ever given birth to a child that could be called holy. Every child born of a woman on earth, from Cain right on down through every successive generation, has been born under the curse through Adam. Every single one has been born the opposite of holy. They, uh, we, uh, have been born sinful, selfish enemies of God. Something incredibly unique is happening here. Redemptive history is entering its most important chapter, the arrival of the promised Messiah, the literal reason for the Christmas season, the fulfillment of the text that uh, Ben has been preaching about the last two Lord's Days. The Holy One is here. Christ is soon to be born. The eternally begotten Son of the Father is taking on flesh to dwell with us. Emmanuel, the final sacrificial lamb, is being prepared to lay down his life and take it up again for us. So upon hearing this news, Mary goes to stay with her relative Elizabeth, whom Gabriel has told her is also pregnant, uh, who once was barren. Another miraculous birth, if to a lesser degree, since John did have a human father. Um, when Mary goes to the hill country to see Elizabeth, the baby, who is John the Baptist, leaps in her womb when they greet each other, likely with an embrace. The unborn John can't contain his excitement being so close to his unborn Lord. And so prompted by the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth speaks in agreement with the words given by Gabriel. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary believed God. Mary loved God. She believed the divine word that the angel Gabriel spoke to her would come true. She believed the miracle. Um, a miracle which had never happened to any other woman in history and would never happen again. She believed it just as it was told to her. She's a woman of deep faith. And just as it happens in our worship, she was confronted by the word, although in, in her case, uh, at the proclamation of an angel, uh, whereas for us, it's the proclamation of the inspired written word of God. And her response to it was praise. That's the essential pattern of the life of faith, revelation and response, word and worship. So let's read Mary's song of praise to her God and our God. So if you're not there already, please turn to Luke 1. Um, we'll start in verse 46 and go through 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. And exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham 
and to his offspring forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, are grateful to read your word this morning. And I pray that as we consider it together that you will, um, that you will speak to us through the word, uh, inspire our praises, remind us of your, of your righteous character. This is Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So Mary was a devout young woman. We can tell just from her song that she must have attended worship faithfully and really knew the scriptures. Her song here, uh, which is actually called the Magnificat, uh, your Bible may actually have that uh, in the section heading. Um, the Magnificat is all about magnifying the greatness of Yahweh, beginning with his character and his deeds. Um, and she does this, she describes this both his deeds toward herself and then to his people. Uh, this, this passage comes through in, in three different sections. We begin, uh, Mary begins with sort of general praise for God's work in her life in verses 46 through 48. And then she highlights three of God's attributes in verses 49 and 50. And then she meditates on the glory of God's actions in verses 51 through 55. I was happy that all those uh, started with a G. So Mary begins her song with an example of, of parallelism. Uh, that's a literary device that's used often in Hebrew poetry, especially in the Psalms. Now, she isn't meaning two different things when she says, <clears throat> my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She's emphasizing her words by making the same point twice, just using different but synonymous words. Uh, this is to describe Mary's heightened exaltation here. She's seeking to magnify, to exalt in Yahweh to the highest degree, to hold him in his highest esteem. She desires to celebrate his righteous perfections. I think it's also key to note that she does say here, God my Savior. Remember, Rome considers Mary a co-redemptrix with Jesus. Some people have confused the Roman Catholic doctrine of the Immaculate Conception and actually conflated it with the virgin birth of Jesus, but that's actually incorrect according to Catholic dogma. They're not speaking of Jesus' conception, that doctrine actually speaks of Mary's conception. Uh, according to, to their faulty logic, they believe that Mary herself had to have been born sinless in order for Jesus to be born sinless. Uh, so they effectively make her holy by nature um, as well in that doctrine of immaculate conception. But Mary was none of those things. She was a common woman who was just as much in need of a savior as we are. Actually, part of the power of the story of the virgin birth is the fact that God purposed that his only begotten son be born of a humble woman by the power and overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. A humble beginning for the gracious miracle of the incarnation of God with us. That's why she confesses that he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. There was nothing to commend her. She didn't have any inherent righteousness of her own that would make her intrinsically worthy of the privilege of bearing the Messiah. There was nothing about her that made her worthy in and of herself of the favor of Yahweh's sight that Gabriel confirmed to her. Nothing. It was because of the abundance of his grace toward her, Yahweh blesses her immensely to the point that all generations will call her blessed. All generations should call her blessed. 
her unique calling to not only give birth to the promised Christ, but to raise him, behold his ministry from this unique relational position, including seeing him give up his spirit on a Roman cross, is absolutely remarkable in a very high calling. Mary was incredibly blessed. But the words of Simeon would also ring true for her. He says to her later, a sword will pierce your own soul too. She'd have her share of trial and difficulty. But as a woman of deep faith in her God, she continued moving forward as God called her to do. The mighty one has done great things for her. And he will do even more as her life story continues to play out in the Gospels. So with her general praise concluded there, we'll move on to God's attributes that she highlights in praises. Up till now, Mary has given examples of Yahweh's providence toward her, specifically as grounds for her praise. But now she begins to shift focus to praising his character and names three of his perfections or attributes. In verse... Um, uh, in our next verse, in verse 49, he call, she calls him mighty, he who is mighty. Do you know that it's actually true that our God is mighty? It's not a cliche to say it at all. Not only is Yahweh the only living God, he's all-powerful and sovereign over every molecule in his creation. He's not weak. Instead, we are weak. And to try and imagine Yahweh as less than mighty is to make him in our image. Psalm 24, verses 7 through 10 speaks in glorious detail about the strength and authority of Yahweh. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This King of glory does not leave the wicked standing tall on his day of judgment. He acts with a, a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. That's actually a common Old Testament description of the might and authority of Yahweh. Let me read you a passage from Deuteronomy 4. Uh, it's Deuteronomy 4, verses 33 through 35. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire, as you have heard, and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take another nation for himself from the midst of another nation, by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God, and there's no other besides him. He not only punishes his enemies, <clears throat> he also saves his beloved ones out of the midst of the enemies. That's why Mary has already called him her savior. He is a mighty savior indeed, and we have benefit we have the benefit now of seeing that in Jesus Christ, who saves his people from their sins. He's mighty to save, as Zephaniah 3.17 says. Now, remember this arm language. We're going we're gonna to come back to that in a little bit. Um, but we'll move to the next perfection, which is Yahweh's holiness. 
Mary sings, holy is his name. Thanks to the ministry of R.C. Sproul and especially his book, The Holiness of God, this, this one particular perfection really does take a very prominent position, at least in my mind, uh, when I think about him. The holiness of Yahweh shows how different he is from us and how much higher his ways are than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Um, our sin becomes all the more apparent when we reflect on Yahweh's holiness. Isaiah gives a particular title to the living God as he delivers his prophecy. He calls him the Holy One of Israel. This Holy One has never changed and will never change. There's no shadow of turning with him. For him to shift or adjust himself would violate his character and he would be less than holy. Holy is his name and his holy nature is as eternal as his name. The Mighty One is the Holy One. He is mightiness itself. He is holiness itself. Yet there's a, a third perfection of Yahweh that rounds out this snapshot of his character that Mary gives us in this song. He's mighty, he's holy, and yet he's merciful. What an amazing combination. We're completely undeserving of his mercy. And yet his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. In our sin, we deserve physical death and eternal punishment for our cosmic crimes. Now remember, Yahweh once cleared the whole slate, quite literally. He sent a flood across the entire earth, which he had every right to do. The earth is Yahweh's in all of its fullness. But what else did he do? He acted in mercy, saving an entire family, Noah's. A man who found favor in Yahweh's sight, despite being a wretched sinner. And Yahweh made a covenant to never destroy the earth by water again. And he put the covenant sign in the sky, the rainbow, which no one has the authority to redefine. This is a beautiful picture of the mercy of God. A mercy foreshadowing the mercy that we would find in Christ. The mercy that flows down from generation to generation. In fact, as the second person of the Trinity, we can boldly say all these attributes are Jesus Christ's attributes, the same as they are the Father's and as they are the Holy Spirit's. His mercy is for those who fear him. Not a fear like cowering before your enemy, uh, before the enemy strikes the killing blow to you. This is a, a reverent fear, a kind of reserved approach before God in the full knowledge that you have no right in and of yourself to approach him at all. It's a repentant fear, a fear that recognizes how small and sinful we are. And yet we who have bowed the knee to the Holy One do indeed find mercy at his throne, the throne of the Almighty King. That's why we call so often to repent and believe, to go to all the world and proclaim the gospel. And for those who repent and believe, our almighty king's memory is long. His mercy endures from generation to generation of those who fear him. Mary, being well acquainted with the law, may have had this passage in mind as she sang this song. This is from Deuteronomy as well. Deuteronomy 7, uh, verses 6 through 10. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. 
The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. Or perhaps even this exclamation from Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Yahweh's mercy has no criteria other than his own perfect, merciful will toward those he has called to himself. This is why we new covenant believers, leaning on his eternal promise to his spiritual Israel, can say that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. His mercy reaches even us, even though we're not ethnic Israel, because there is neither Jew nor Gentile at the foot of the cross. His mercy is fresh for every generation. The ones that preceded us, it's fresh for our generation. It will be fresh for the generations that follow us. And so we continue to call, repent, and believe. Holy is his name indeed. Holy, holy, holy. Merciful and mighty. God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. Mary continues her song in consideration of the deeds of Yahweh that flow directly from his perfections. In keeping with his attributes, Yahweh acts mightily and mercifully with all holiness. He's shown strength with his arm. Remember that mighty hand and outstretched arm language we saw from Deuteronomy earlier? This is the arm of providence that is never too short to accomplish his goals. To reach the farthest wandering sheep to pull the remote enemy before him in repentance or to reach the grieving heart of one of his children. It's also an arm that scatters those who oppose him with proud hearts. One great example of God scattering his enemies would be Jesus' various debates with the Pharisees, the most prideful people in their time. Jesus consistently proved their errors and, more importantly, their own apostasy from the true teaching of the Scriptures. From their, from their God. Sometimes he did it with subtle words, sometimes in much more straightforward terms. But because he's God, we can not only take this, but we can scale this up even further than those man-to-man -man interactions. King Jesus, of whom Isaiah prophesied that the government shall be on his shoulders, rules over every nation and every earthly king, premier, president, dictator, congressman, governor, or mayor. We're not joking when we confess that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he's pleased to bring some into power and to topple others. He's done this throughout history. 
He brought Nebuchadnezzar to his knees, literally, causing him to live like a beast of the field. Then he restored Nebuchadnezzar's wits, and the man stood up and ascribed power and glory to the Holy One, the true God. Other wicked rulers haven't fared so well. King Jesus brought down Xerxes and Nero and Caligula and Genghis Khan, Joseph Stalin, Idi Amin, Chairman Mao, and Kim Il-sung, just to name a few. These mighty ones who wielded brutal power against others, power they had no right to exert, were all brought low by the will and power of Christ. That's his right as king of all creation. The strength of Yahweh as demonstrated in Christ has turned the world upside down. He humiliated the proud, those who lorded over others, and he's instead lifted up the humble, an act in which we can see might, mercy, and holiness all in one, and it's all done for his good pleasure. Now, because of Yahweh's actions alone, those of little regard are called to be adopted as sons and daughters of the Holy One of Israel, co-heirs with our Savior, Jesus Christ, and have access to his merciful ear in our prayers and a host of gifts that he's purposed to give us. He's removed these rulers and he's ushered in a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He's made the weak strong. He's made what is considered foolish by the world to confound the worldly wise, all in Christ and for him, the second person of the Trinity who took on flesh to accomplish all of this, all in accordance with divine prophecy. Now, I'm intrigued by the fact that uh, in the, next in the text, um, it says that he fills the hungry with good things. Good things, not necessarily good food or delicious drink, good things. This isn't merely sustenance for the body, which needs to be replenished multiple times a day. Yes, he does supply our daily bread, right? And we, we do pray and ask him for those things in the model prayer that, that Jesus taught us. But he supplies our every need. Uh, he, he fills his people with good things, not only the immediate things, but the ultimate things as well. He covers his people. Matthew records the following words of Jesus in his gospel account. Uh, from the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Those who are rich and who live for their riches, like the rich young ruler did, they would rather trust their stockpiles than trust in Jesus. And they would never stoop to being satisfied merely with righteousness. John Calvin actually puts this very well in his commentary on this, on this very verse. He writes, it's because the great and rich and powerful, lifted up by their abundance, ascribe all the praise to themselves and leave nothing to God. We ought, therefore, to be scrupulously on our guard against being carried away by prosperity and against a vain satisfaction of the flesh, lest God suddenly deprive us of what we enjoy. And then finally, this holy, mighty, and merciful God has helped his people Israel. This is where the camera begins to zoom out a bit uh, from God's action among particular people uh, out to groups of people, the, to the entire nation. Mary remembers from Scripture how sinful Israel has been throughout their history, constantly falling into worship of false gods, 
constantly being exiled away from the promised land, constantly grumbling against the Holy One. But she also remembers when he turned their hearts back to himself, when he brought them home from those same exiles, and when he turned their grumbling into praise, much like Mary's praise right now. Mary's song bears a striking, striking resemblance to another song of praise uh, by a woman made a mother by a miracle. Uh, turn just quickly to 1 Samuel chapter 2. First Samuel chapter 2, and we'll read verses 1 through 10. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, and the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Like Mary, Hannah praises Yahweh for his mighty mercy toward her specifically. And then she reflects on his mighty humbling of the proud and lifting up of the downcast. The punishment of the wicked and the blessing of the righteous. He will judge the earth righteously. His, and his king will be mighty. But not merely King David, but King Jesus, the eternal king, prophesied to be born of a virgin. Hannah was given the gift of a son after struggling bitterly with infertility, much like Mary's own relative Elizabeth. But she gave birth to a son of Adam, radically sinful, though he walked with Yahweh all, his all the days of his life. But he was no Messiah. He was no mighty, merciful, holy king. He was no Christ. Just another in a long line of failures that Ben mentioned two Lord's Days ago. But Mary bore the God-man, the man who is truly human and truly divine. Yahweh has certainly remembered his covenant and will help his people through the person of the Son. The one who bestows mercy is soon to be born into history. And he has not only helped, he is saved. Mary remembers Abraham in his line, as recipients of the promise of the coming Messiah. Remember when Jesus said this in John 8? Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham received good and precious promises from Yahweh 
that he passed on to his son Isaac, who passed them to his son Jacob, who passed them on, and then on and on it went. The core promise beyond land, seed, and blessing was the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, what some call the proto-evangelion, the good news before the good news. He would be the one that would not only give Abraham children according to the flesh, but spiritual children made such by salvation, so that we who abide in Christ are children of promise counted as offspring. That salvation is the Son with the capital S. He who would crush the head of the serpent was on the way, and that in the fullness of time he would appear. And now, at the time of this singing, he was within months of that humble yet glorious appearance. God of all mercy is to be born of the woman who sang this song. She's blessed because he's blessed, and he's worthy of all blessing. She spent this time magnifying the name of her God, whom she was carrying in her own womb at that very moment. He humbled himself to take on flesh, live as a man among men and women, teaching and healing and suffering to lift up the humble. In his mighty works, he's removed all cause for boasting among the supposed rulers of the earth. His little infant arm and outstretched hand would, would grow up to embrace his friends at the wedding at Cana before he changed the water to wine. His hand would touch the lepers and heal them and then receive a Roman nail at Golgotha. And in doing so, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them. Christ is mighty. Christ is merciful. Christ is holy. He has done wonderful things for us. Dying in our stead and receiving the wrath of the Father in our place so that we could be adopted as brothers and sisters in him. He holds out good things to us who abide in him. Every good and perfect gift comes from his hand. May we be as God-centered in our own song as Mary was. Let's never forget our mighty, merciful, and holy God, our eternal King who rules over all the nations. Let's praise Jesus Christ, who, though born of a woman, never had a beginning, but is eternal. He is the help of his chosen people, our good shepherd, who will carry us through the valley of shadow of death until we arrive safely home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for, for who you are and what you've done, and that your deeds follow from your righteous and wonderful character. Pray that as we uh, consider you, consider your nature, consider your deeds, uh, that we'll be not only reminded of our sin, but reminded that you are for us, and that we can run to you in repentance and in praise. So, Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ and what he's given to us. Thank you that we can be reconciled to you through his blood. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.